friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I have a co-hostess with me, my TCA colleague and friend, Maureen Ferguson. We have, as usual, a great show lined up for you today. Today, uh, we're going to be considering the Mississippi abortion ban case, soon to be heard by the highest court in the land. We wanted to discuss that with Catholic legal scholar Helen Alvarez, and uh, she has uh, just submitted a brief Uh, supporting the state of Mississippi, and she'll tell us all about that. You know, we ourselves at the Catholic Association authored and and submitted a brief offering justices uh, the opportunity to see uh, in black and white and in color pictures of the the very obvious humanity of the fetus, something I see every day, but something that um, I think is, is very important for the justices to take a look at as they consider whether or not uh, Roe and Casey um, need to be re-examined. Um, Helen authored a, a, a brief also uh, with Erica Bakioki, who is our first guest. Erica um, wrote uh, a book about true feminism. Uh, she is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Her book is called The Rights of Women, Reclaiming a Lost Vision. And it's a really important message for this current time. We are so glad to have her with us today. Welcome back to the show, Erica. Thank you so much, Gracie, for having me. You know, I really want to get to your book because I'm excited uh, to hear about it. Um, But before that, I mentioned uh, a little earlier that, uh, you know, we're right in the beginning of the Biden administration, the Biden-Harris administration, and we're already feeling the effects of uh, of a flurry of executive orders. Um, And one of them that I find especially concerning, and I'm sure you do too, is the transgender rule that he's uh, promulgated already. Since you're so up on it, you could explain it to us, tell us what's happened and what kind of effects you think we can expect. Sure. So um, on his very first day in office, um, he promulgated this executive order on preventing and combating discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. You know, we expected to see this very soon into uh, the administration because we thought the Congress would be trying to pass the Equality Act very quickly. And we can talk about that. But to have an executive order on the first day was, I thought, shocking. Some people kind of had a heads up. Um, And what the order does is it extends the reasoning of Bostock, the Clayton County, the opinion that came out in 2020 to Title IX. So Bostock, of course, was that case that was looking at how Title seven provisions which deal with sex discrimination in employment areas, whether that sex discrimination would apply to gender identity. And so Title seven, of course, is part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, prohibiting sex discrimination in employment. And what the, what the court said with actually Justice Gorsuch, in a big surprise, I thought, writing uh, the opinion for the majority, is that trans individuals ought not be discriminated against. And this is kind of the 
key language based on traits and actions that per, that a person chooses to perform. So the court didn't go so far as to say that, you know, trans identifying males are really women. Those who call themselves trans women are really women. But they did extend Title VII into and then to include gender identity law, uh, gender identity claims. And so what the executive order is doing is basically just as people anticipated, as lower courts began to do, extending this rule into Title IX uh, of the Educational Amendments of 1972, which of course has to do with um, equal opportunities, equal access for men and women in any educational program, any athletic program that gets federal funding. So all public schools. So at the very beginning of the order, they claim children should be able to learn without worrying about whether they will be denied access to the restroom or locker room or school sports. Hmm. So kind of astounding. And, you know, what what uh, Bostock had said is we'll put we'll push these kinds of questions off. We'll push the religious liberty questions and the conscience questions, but we'll also push off any other questions dealing with um, these kinds of things. But this is, you know, immediately invites trans identifying males who call themselves trans women into into women's sports with the privileges of testosterone that they have had, you know, searing through their bodies for all their adolescence to, of course, crush women um, in sports such as track. And we've seen in Connecticut, you know, steal state titles and that type of thing. And we anticipate that those athletes in Connecticut will be then taking scholarships from women. Before we get into the educational part of it that the executive order specified, right? That's the specifics of the executive order in education. Mm -hmm. On the issue of employment, the original employment discrimination statute was about the idea, which I think all of us can agree with, that if two people who are similarly capable of of doing the same job, right? So I'm a radiologist. So a male radiologist and a female radiologist radiologist are basically equal when it comes to their ability to perform our job, which is to interpret images. And Mm -hmm. then my employer shouldn't say, well, I'm only going to advance the male. If a male and a female are sitting in front of me, I'm only going to take the male. Or I prefer to only work with women, so I'm only going to hire a woman or or promote a woman. And that's the way it was always understood. And I think most Americans and most people still understand discrimination on the basis of sex. Is that correct, Erica? Yeah, that's right. And really, you know, the way Justice Ginsburg, who really, you know, was the advocate for this kind of law coming up as an ACLU attorney in the 1970s, and then on, on the bench, you know, herself, the way she described this was really trying to eradicate sex stereotypes from the law. And so just because men and women have different bodies or different Mm -hmm. reproductive capacities, that doesn't mean that women should be pigeonholed as mothers only, right? So, you know, you and I have the capacities to become mothers and we are mothers, but that should not keep us or we should not be discriminated from becoming the doctor and lawyer we are. And so what's fascinating, I think, about this is that this trans law basically flips this whole thing on its head. And so really sex stereotypes Stereotypes that were supposed to be eradicated from the law have actually been invited right back in by this Bostock opinion because the way they're looking at this, the way they're looking at this trans-identifying male is based on his traits and actions. So the fact that he wanted to dress as a, as a woman, and so really they're kind of defining womanhood not by that which defines, you know, makes the difference between men and women, which is our reproductive capacities, but the fact that he could dress like a woman, act like a woman. So those basic 
basic stereotypes that, you know, were meant to be eradicated from the law in order that you and I might have access to education as we, you know, ought to and those types of things without being discriminated based on our sex. But Erica, there are jobs that you want to be performed by women or by men, even because they're not equal when it comes to performing the job, right? So I'm thinking maybe you like to go have your bikini line waxed, right? As a woman. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. something women yeah. do. You wouldn't go to a male to wax your bikini line. So if you were running a wax shop, you would only hire women. Your customers are women and you want them to feel comfortable being waxed by women. And what does right. employment discrimination has to say about that? And then what happens to that when you add this transgender ideology to it? That's right. So there is a business necessity defense and always has been. And so exactly right. So, you know, there can be a claim of sex discrimination and then the business or employer can come back and say, well, it's necessary for me to have this woman or this man do this job. Obviously, that's going to be strictly construed, you know, but of course, in, in the case of something like bikini waxing, uh, you would think, I don't know that there's case law on this, but you would think <laughs> that that would be something that only women would do to other women. But you're absolutely right. In this case, I don't see how just as men, um, these trans identifying men would be invited into women's locker rooms, women's sports teams, women's jails, women's shelters, etc. I don't see how they could be kept out of um, that kind of job as well. I guess at the bottom of everything, and I'm sure our listeners understand, is that we have redefined sex. We have said, so So as I'm, I know as a doctor, but as anybody who has the, the most the most basic understanding of science and just physical reality, all mammals come in two sexes, male and female. And our experience of our, our entire disposition, our physical disposition is different, whether we're male or female, and the way we experience life and interact with all the different parts of, of life is completely different. And there's only those two categories, male and female. Okay. Um, so when we take that out of what the way we arrange ourselves and call sex something that can be chosen or conflate it with gender, which is more of a social a social idea of how we express our sex, then we come up upon all this uh, all this craziness that we're experiencing. That's right, and you know, it's I think it's notable, and and there are philosophers who have who have written this that when we do something like this, we're basically saying that everyone now has to choose their sex, right? Or their gender identity when these two things are conflated. And so I, it's not, you know, I'm not identified as something by birth. Um, you know, you as a doctor can't tell me what I am at birth and I have to choose that. And so what it really does is, I mean, it pushes this idea, this kind of consumerism or materialism that I think is pretty core sometimes to some of our sort of American philosophy and pushes it all the way to something that is so deeply foundational and biological, which is sex, you know, that it's something that must be chosen. And, and, you know, where does this come straight out of? Well, all sorts of, you know, enlightenment philosophy, but we see it most clearly in our law, obviously, with regard to pregnancy. So when pregnancy can be chosen and, you know, whether we keep the child can be chosen, well, why not push it further? And, you know, our sex is actually our gender identity is actually chosen. And how confusing this must be to children, of course. Well, you're talking about the idea that there is perfect autonomy, right? Perfect personal autonomy as to delineating our own selves and shaping our own realities. Yeah. And as you say, we apply it first to our reproduction, 
we can we say we reproduce when we want and if we've already reproduced we can we can cancel it through an abortion but now it extends also to even that very physical reality that we can't erase even with surgeries and hormones which is our sex which is imprinted on every single one of our somatic cells in our body that's right and so it's just it's sort of it's another legal fiction that you know we're trying to build into the law which is you know the legal fiction that the unborn or preborn child is not actually a person or an individual with human rights and now we have this kind of this legal fiction of sex that you know used to mean something very concrete as concrete as it could get right Mm -hmm. and now is something we speak into existence as a philosopher daniel moody says we speak our gender identity into existence and the law is supposed to somehow account for this when that's not what the law does right it deals with kind of embodied human beings because that's what we are and so it really elevates this fleeting often fleeting in the case of um, an individual's life if they want to you know determine their sex and gender identity in a very fluid way how does the law how does the law deal with that and it's something you know that is so nebulous and I mean we haven't we haven't dealt with anything like this I don't think that I can think of in the law so it's it's a very dangerous thing and it when you know when language and uh, you know people's sort of uh, desires come upon law then we're we start to get into tyrannical rule it's no longer law it's no longer being ruled by by reason it's really by something else entirely we wonder as we watch all this going on we wonder as regular people not living in academia or on the fringes of uh, progressive ideology we wonder when do people stop and say wait this is madness and i wonder if the fact that people who are watching who are going to be watching their daughters more and more be shuffled aside in their sports opportunities and and other things in school no it doesn't just have to be sports but other things where it's important for girls to have their own space i wonder if this could be a point where people will finally stand up and say enough of the madness yeah you know i really hope so i have to say when i first started researching this several years ago i really couldn't get it out of my mind i mean i just you know i was i was actually this morning when i was praying the rosary and i was meditating on you know jesus and agony and and his agony in the garden and i was just thinking you know that he foresaw all of this and was grieving for all of us and you know those children who are now so confused are being brought up in a in a you know in a culture that is so confusing and you know i was thinking about putting this historical moment in some context you know and and thinking about how deeply he must be grieving so like we moved from condemning acts that were sort of evils you know like the kind the destruction of women's genitalia in you know certain um, societies to kind of celebrating when young children are setting themselves on the course to do that themselves and i just it's it's kind of astonishing like as an intellectual i move right into the ideas you know and how how the ideas are false ideas that have been sort of have moved through our culture and where they've come from and all that but to think about the children i think who are involved in this that's the part that is just grieves me so much and you just can imagine how much it grieves our lord and so i think you know it's one of those things where where scripture tells us this demon only comes out with prayer and fasting i think is right is that we really it really requires a lot of fasting on on behalf of the entire christian community and just speaking the truth with lots and lots of love because clearly there's so much woundedness we already know that we've already seen that for decades now but to get to get where we are actually encouraging children to self-mutilate or to mut- you know have themselves mutilated and doctors are involved in that and doctors are prohibited in some in some states from speaking out against it from counseling them otherwise i mean this is astonishing i, I think just as kind of the divorce revolution led to i think you know conversions like mine reversions like mine into the church you know feeling the pain of my own parents divorce and my mother marrying divorcing two other times 
you know, one hopes that the same sort of thing will be seen both by those children who then grow up a bit and kind of come back and and, um, see what they've done to themselves. But hopefully before that, you know, hopefully parents will start to kind of really stand up against this. And, you know, the fact that he's done this so quickly makes me think, you know, that hopefully there'll be some sort of quick backlash as well. I mean, if it takes two years, but hope, you know, hopefully we can all be really educating ourselves in that time, be taking our children out of public schools as best we can, be supporting these new classical schools and those types of things, and, you know, be huddling together and praying as much as we can um, for this. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm talking to Erica Bakioki. She's a pro-life feminist legal scholar who's just written a new book called The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision. Erica, moving on to your book. Tell us about your book. What's it about and what what did you hope to accomplish by writing it? Yeah, so I've actually been working on it for some time and it really stems right from kind of the inadequacy of our theories of rights, which we can see in where we've come. You know, if we can say that woman has a right to take the life of her own child to whom she properly owes duties of care, if we can say that, you know, children, now we haven't said that children have the right to mutilate their genitalia, but certainly um, have the have the right to be, you know, trans individuals who are invited into other locker. I mean, there's a problem, right, with our ideas of rights. And I think, you know, a lot of it, um, I look at sort of the philosophical um, shaping of all that throughout the book, but I wanted to go back. I'm deeply informed by um, the work of Marianne Glendon, whose famous book, Rights Talk, um, was really instrumental to me as a pro-choice feminist in college. I read that book and it really it really shaped kind of how I began to think about things. So I wanted to really go back to kind of the philosophical precursors of the women's right, rights movement. And I went back to Mary Wollstonecraft, who's an 18th century British philosopher, and then traced her thought through the early American women's rights advocates to really find that for the most part, though there's a there's a radical strain that comes up and then takes becomes prominent in the 1970s, the very early women's rights advocates building on Wollstonecraft's thought understood rights as based on or grounded in our responsibilities to God and to others, um, and really our ultimate responsibilities to live lives of um, moral excellence. And so I wanted to kind of show how this strain of thought, um, not only for women's rights, but for rights generally, is just um, sort of more foundational and just a better way to think about rights as grounded in our concrete responsibilities. That really responsibilities come first and then our rights enable us to fulfill our responsibilities or allow, you know, like children and others to make claims on those who have, have responsibilities to them. And so really responsibilities are kind of the first, uh, the first thing and then rights rather than the other way around. How did the, how did, so if I remember correctly, Mary Wollstonecraft, she based her idea, she based her writings and her ideas on, on women's rights as being equal to the rights of men on the fact that women, like men, were reasoning creatures, that they had been endowed by God with the same ability to reason. Correct? Is that true, Erica? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That they're rational creatures. And the really um, important part, Gracie, is how she understood both creatures and how she understood reason. <laughs> and, and I think those are really important questions that were going on in her, you know, at her time in the Enlightenment. Her understanding of creatures is very much creatures of God, and so dependent upon God. Um, and her understanding of reason is really she didn't use the word participation, but she, you know, understood reason as being a capacity given by God in order that we can understand 
and how to live lives of virtue and how to you know acquire um, and, and seek to acquire wisdom. So what I talk about is that she kind of is this great kind of amalgamum of both the ancient understandings of and the ancient quest for virtue and wisdom combined with a modern quest for um, for equality and, and political freedom. Because I think what bothered Mary Wollstonecraft very much is that women were being uh, treated as infants uh, throughout their entire lives and not being uh, uh, taught to reason, not being allowed to have, not, not allowed to have the reasoning, um, their capacities to develop as reasoning people. And therefore, they they were sort of um, sentimental infants and could never properly approach their duties and take take charge of their duties because they hadn't been given the training um, that they needed. Uh, does that does that is that right, Erica? That's exactly right. You've nailed it. Absolutely, that's right. And that their real quest. I mean, what's fascinating in a book about women's rights is that rights is actually the word does not come up very much, but mm-hmm. virtue is all the way through the book. And she really understood that the purpose of life is to attain to virtue. And one of the problems at that time was that women's virtue was conceived as one term, which was chastity and chastity oh, alone. Right. Mm-hmm. And whereas um, you know men had sort of the full panoply of virtues, although not chastity <laughs> in the sense. <laughs> <laughs> that they tended to, women tended to be blamed for men's lack of chastity. Um, and so she really bemoans that fact and, and kind of points to the real, you know, the cause of a lot of women's suffering was the fact that men didn't, weren't serious about chastity in the way that they held, you know, they expected women to be. But then she basically says, look, if women are rational creatures, just like men, then they are capable of um, attaining lives of virtue, all of the virtues, and that that is really their shared human purpose is to develop those capacities and but ter- towards certain ends, and that's a really key part, is that it's not just develop capacities, which you see with John Stuart Mill, and then in capacity theorists now like Martha, Martha Nissbaum, etc. But it's really toward a particular end, which is um, virtue and wisdom, which is where you sort of see the ancient strain in her thought. So this proto-feminist um, conceives of, of women as being denied their right, in a sense, to education, to be treated as, as, as rational beings, that then turns about and makes women incapable of fulfilling their duties and attaining all the virtues. That's right. Right? So then you have this... this devolution of, of what feminism ought to be, especially in the 70s. And you're trying to recapture that. So what? how do you recapture that idea of feminism for today's secular age? Yes, it's a good question. And it's a it's a big book. It's about it's a little bit more than 400 pages. But what I, I do show sort of the strains of Mary Wollstonecraft's thought that come all the way even through parts of Betty Friedan, when she asked that women be thought of as persons and not only as mothers, that they should be, you know, that the profession should be opened up to them, education should be opened up to them, etc. But I, you know, where we start to go downhill is when Betty Friedan joins up forces with the population control advocates of abortion and start to see, I mean, the real shift happens with this idea, uh, it's a shift in an understanding of voluntary motherhood, which I get into. So voluntary motherhood with the early American feminists was really the belief that women ought to be free to determine when to have children in other words, when to have sex. So their husbands ought not push sex upon them because of reproductive asymmetry. Women were the ones who carried children and then raised the children, you know, primarily um, were, so, you know, were primarily responsibility for that, for especially in infancy, that women ought to be able to, as Sarah Grimke says, control all preliminaries. And so the early American feminists were very much against both contraception and abortion because they believed these to facilitate kind of male aggression and male presumption 
presumption, sexual presumption. And so what you see is this drastic shift with similar language used by someone like Betty Friedan, who talks about not wanting to be forced into motherhood, but she doesn't understand that to be the call of abstinence and understanding how reproduction works and abstaining during, you know, fertile periods, etc., which is what the early American feminists were trying to get to, though the science wasn't there yet. Instead, she understands you're not wanting to be forced into motherhood the way, well, for these today's abortion rights advocate understand, which is that you can then determine when you, whether to carry that child to term or you can determine to kill it. And so you enge- they're engaging in private killing, right? And, and the court gives the imprimatur to that. And so what I show is that this would be, would have been ridiculous for someone like Mary Wollstonecraft for whom the right was there in order to care for or, uh, those to whom we had responsibilities, in order to fulfill those prior duties, those pre-existing duties, of course, to our children. And so if a society wasn't, you know, um, uh, was, you know, not allowing women to be educated, not allowing women to have some sort of financial stability, was keeping women in difficult, you know, marriages of abuse and that type of thing where they weren't able to care for their children. Well, that would be a problem with the society that wouldn't enable them to take the life of their child. I then go on to really lean on Mary, um, Mary and Glendon's work and showing sort of the importance of the law in taking seriously dependency and the shared responsibilities of men and women um, in caring for dependency. I know Mary Wollstonecraft talks about that a lot, uh, about the, the, the needs of, of a woman to take care of her, her elderly parents um, right. and other dependents. And, and so Marianne Glendon, she writes about that specifically about dependency and, and, the, and the role she, that women have to fulfill there. Well, she does write a lot about dependency. What's interesting about Marianne Glendon, who has really been one of the leading scholars in human rights, in um, understandings of rights of her generation, if not, you know, in the last um, century, is that she was a single mother. And so at the very beginning of her legal career, she was, you know, the only woman who sat on the law review at uh, University of Chicago in her time. She was a real incredible scholar, um, incredible legal thinker. And she was left by her first husband and to raise her children, her child alone. Um, And so she really got dependency in her bones Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the vulnerability that came with dependency. And so she really, she wrote a really monumental book called Abortion and uh, Divorce in Western Law, where she she shows that our abortion law, especially in our kind of autonomy um, focused American uh, law, really, you know, provides, um, it gives real short shrift to um, those, to, to both dependents, of course, and then those caring for dependents, so primarily women, of course, and kind of lets men and others off the hook. And so she, I mean, she provides, she is sort of um, my greatest intellectual um, hero and my mentor. And so she kind of lays out the framework in the last part of the book, uh, where I sort of start to rebuild an understanding of rights as necessary for sort of living lives of excellence. Well, Erica, I'm really looking forward to reading your book. It's it's available now on pre-order on Amazon. And uh, to remind our listeners, it's called The Rights of Women Reclaiming a Lost Vision, Catholic Ideas for a Secular World. It sounds fascinating. And I think today very much needed. Um, we have to refashion, rethink out all the things that we that we took for granted going forward as it's being become coming abundantly clear that we can't take anything for granted, right? Yes, it's so true. Well, thank you, Erica, for joining us. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Welcome 
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague, co-hostess, and dear friend, Maureen Ferguson. Great to have you here today, Maureen. We're so excited to have our good friend, Professor Helen Alvarez, with us. She's a professor of law at Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, and she has filed a brief regarding a very important case being heard this fall by the Supreme Court. Welcome back to the show, Helen. Thank you for having me. You know, Helen, I consider you're the smartest woman in America, bar none. I've told you this before. Stop. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Knowing I'm not, it just keeps me totally normal. So this is good. (laughs) Oh, no. So, Helen, you've submitted a brief in the Dobbs case, and it was submitted on behalf of... 240 women scholars, professionals, a lot of pro-life feminist organizations signed on. And the brief seems to challenge the argument set out in Roe and Casey that essentially that women need abortion, that for women to be equal members of society, we need abortion. So can you tell us in a nutshell, how does your brief combat that faulty premise of Roe and Casey? Yes. So people know that, you know, Roe says it's women's right of privacy, that grounds abortion. But in the Casey decision in 1992, the court says, listen, women cannot be equal citizens without abortion. And that is very troubling. And I think a lot of people believe it. On this simplistic idea, less kids, more time, more money, more education, better job. I think it's an intuition that a lot of people have. So Teresa Collette, myself, Erica Bakiaki, Elizabeth Kirk, <clears throat> we had been thinking about this. And I had written an article, it, I just finished it, it'll be in a law review this year, that said, hey, wait a minute, is there data for that? And in a nutshell, what we find is that women's progress in society gosh, education, their their public office, their happiness, their ability to engage in the kind of work they want, the ability to get married and have kids, all these things that are markers of women's progress. Actually, the arrow was going up at the time that rates and ratios of abortion were crashing down. Fewer abortions per thousand women, fewer abortions per pregnancy, and all these markers of women women's success in life, in happiness, in social economic realms are going up, especially since 1990 as abortion rates are crashing. So we just wanted to present that data to the court and say, what do you mean taking the lives of our children is what makes us happy, free, equal in society? We can show you we were doing great when we were having fewer abortions. And it is something that people have accepted as um, an incontrovertible truth that abortion liberates. I don't mean people like us, but sort of the general culture because that is what we're being taught by by cases like Roe and Casey and the way they've shaped um, by by the way they've shaped our laws they say well if women don't have and we hear this constantly in the media and in Hollywood and and, and academia we we hear constantly if if a woman can't access an abortion her life will be wrecked so you're saying that the numbers the statistics the real life experiences of of women through the decades does not bear that out exactly and we didn't even go into because briefs have page limits what happens when a woman becomes a mother? Like all these women, I don't know if you saw, there was a recent woman in the Olympics, I can't recall her name, who had been harassed by 
Nike during her contract when she got pregnant because they basically wanted her to just, you know, pose for Nike. And she took something like 100000 bucks of the money she got from Nike and doled it out $10,000 each to women with kids who were in the Olympics and said, you know, the world does not really support us moms. Well, we pointed out that abortion is part of this problem, that the world doesn't even recognize what childbearing, what childrearing gives to moms. So many women say, oh my gosh, I was I was a child myself until I did this, until I really took care of someone else. Furthermore, we think that the cultural message, and we said this in the brief, that you're better off without children. And by the way, you're all alone with your privacy rights to terminate their lives, has sent a message to business, to government, to, to everybody in power that women really ought to have abortions and ought not to have children if they really want to succeed. So great. How's that for a way to shape policy, both at the public and private level? So the brief talks about, just jumping back for a minute, when you talk about how the expanding opportunities for women, the redefinition of their roles in society, how that really predates the creation of the right to abortion in Roe. And you tick through in the brief several of the laws passed in the 1960s regarding equal pay, civil rights, Equal Employment Act. So can you elaborate on how those are more responsible for women's advancement rather than the right to abortion. Yes. And and just to first sort of, the, you know, the, the pieces of the brief are the other side says we need abortion to be equal. We want to show you several things. Number one, we want to show you that there are all kinds of laws pre-row, throughout row, and post-row opening up opportunities to women publicly and privately. And you don't give them any credit. And you don't give women's responding to these opportunities and making their own way any credit. Second, look at all this data that shows when abortion rates and ratios were declining, women's success was increasing. Third, abortion gives everybody license to tell us don't have kids and then I'll accept you as my employee, student, etc. Um, so those are the pieces of it. We decided there were so many laws, Maureen, pre-row, beginning in the 1930s with the Fair Labor Standards Act, going through the 60s, the civil rights law, right through the 70s and after, that we ended up having to put them in the appendix because it would have made the brief insanely long, that were offering women a level playing field. And these laws continued for decades. Justice Rehnquist in his dissent in the Casey opinion in 1992 says, hey, what about all these laws that have allowed women an equal playing field and women's, you know, robust response to these? Does that mean nothing? Are you really saying that being able to be rid of, of an undesired pregnancy is, is, is the ticket to equality? Wow. It doesn't only make so much sense to me that women were achieving equality in the workplace um, before abortion was legalized, but it makes a lot of sense to me what you say about abortion actually making women less equal because and you've said this in other times and other in other things you've written um, abortion is abortion makes women responsible for the pregnancy completely so that yeah. she's the fact that she can always abort makes it her responsibility to take care of that child to take care of her job to make sure that that um, that she's able to keep showing up to work so if she makes the choice to not abort then her employer the father of the child the people the community around her can say well you ought to have had the abortion. So it, it actually makes women less supported by everyone around them when they do find themselves with child. Uh, yes, and you've explained it well. Many people on the, the liberal side of the equation, Joan Williams in her book Unbending Gender, Catherine McKinnon, a pretty radical feminist scholar, have basically said the following, um, why 
why is society want women to be, quote, the ideal male worker, you know, never pregnant (laughs) and not (laughs) with a lot of uh, child care responsibility? And Catherine McKinnon, you know, let out kind of this primal scream in one of her writings in a book called Feminism Unmodified that said, you know, uh, the way that the abortion right is grounded right now leaves a woman alone with her privacy to be abused and suffer. (laughs) I mean, it really, and, and I mean, think about it, all of us know this, the the agony that every woman goes through when she has this baby and thinks to herself, either I need to work or I would like to make some contribution in the public square as well as in the home. The world has nothing for me, practically. I, I have to do this. If I'm lucky, I have family nearby. If I'm lucky, I have a wonderful husband to help me. But many women don't have that, especially the poorest women. To think that this sort of extremely basic, and the word agony, I don't think is overstating it, that so many women undergo, and that for some reason, all this other stuff, as they like to say, we can send a man to a moon, but we can't figure out how to help a woman with a child do justice at home first and also justice at work outside the home. It's totally been privatized, and abortion was, I think, at the heart of conceptualizing this agonizing question for women as a private thing that you just have to take care of by yourself. Um, and I'm not talking about having, you know, government subsidize or pay for everything. Certainly, if they do end up putting through some kind of subsidy for childcare, I'd like to see that offered equally for women who would like to stay home with their children, just as an assistance to families, not, you know, a childcare uh, allowance only for, for uh, out-of-home care. Um, It's just so obvious that abortion sort of crystallized this idea that interdependence, that mother-child relationship is not something that the society has to even care about at all. It's totally private. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, alongside my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Maureen Ferguson. We're talking to the brilliant Helen Alvarez, professor of law at Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. Helen, uh, now our entire world, well, our entire um uh, the the West, I think, not the entire world, is facing a demographic nightmare. People have stopped having children, and the the terrible consequences of that are going to be facing us fairly soon. The inverted uh, a pyramid of too many older people supported by too too few young people who work, and at the same time, we have made it very difficult for women to to have families and also work. And we teach girls, since they're very little, that what you must do is work, you must succeed professionally. So how does abortion fit into um, all of this? Right. Well, there's, you know, there's so many pieces of it. First of all, abortion, you know, it just demeans children generally as not terribly valuable. You remember that the population bomb scare sort of came along right, you know, before and during uh, Roe versus Wade at that period of time. There's also sort of the cultural message that if something can be done technologically, it must be good. You know, the thinner iPhone must be a moral good. Why? Well, because it's thinner, because it's new. (laughs) The technology of contraception, abortion, RU486, assisted reproductive technologies. Well, they're 
technology, therefore good. Um, anything that allows humans more control is therefore good. The idea of these things that are givens, you know, um, the relationship between sex and parenthood, the woman's maternal role, the, the fact that the child needs care, all of these things are so much feeding into some already difficult cultural notions that lead us to think of children as a completely separate choice from our choice to love our spouse, a completely separate choice from the choice to to be married at all. So the idea that it is a gift, that it is a natural part of life, that interdependence and care is um, extraordinarily valuable. And frankly, for Christians, the fact of the tight analogies made in the Old and New Testament between understanding familial relations and understanding Mm. God's love for us and us for one another, losing that whole constellation of deep understandings and instead having children reduced to a choice. And I know this sounds harsh. I'm not judging individual people. I'm talking about a big cultural wave here. A choice separate from marriage. A choice that is mostly problematic. It reduces our time, maybe our income. We're so swimming in this right now that we've forgotten that there is another way to think of those things as the primary goods, these family relations, and that other things serve them versus tailoring our whole life to serve maximum efficiency, you know, in our office. Helen, I know we have to let you go in just a minute, but but quickly, for, for court watchers, this case is, you know, it's like the Super Bowl. It, it's bigger than that. It's yes. <laughs> the abortion lobby. But yes. clearly, the, the stakes couldn't be higher for the fate of unborn children and for their mothers, as you so eloquently speak about. But so for court watchers, I think all eyes are on Chief Justice Roberts, Brett Cavett, and of course, Amy Barrett. So I would love to just briefly pick your brain about each of these. And maybe we could start with Amy Coney Barrett. So many of us are interested in her thought on this. And I think we all see from the generosity of the way she has lived her her life, her family, seven children, two of whom are adopted, one with special needs, member of the faculty for life at Notre Dame. I think we all know where her heart is, but from the Mm -hmm. standpoint of her judicial philosophy and her role as a judge, how might she approach the particular legal questions of this case? Right. I, I, I don't mean to be, you know, naive or simplistic when I respond to this, which is it's the critiques of Roe are such a tsunami of legit criticism about the lack of uh, its origin in the Constitution, about the fact that all of the elements of stare decisis, that is, respecting prior decisions, um, are really missing here. It's it's been a, a, a legal mess. It's been unsettled, and the argument that it was made up and unrelated to the Constitution is as strong now as it ever was. There are a lot of arguments for her to grab onto that do not make her extreme, do not make her political, do not make her biased or personal, she can write a completely legal, high-end, complicated constitutional opinion that draws on 200 years of precedent and is recognized as a good constitutional opinion. She she doesn't have to worry about, I mean, she'll, you know, we'll all get called names. There's, none of us can stop that. But the opinion can avoid 
in fact, all of the notions that she is not doing this straight out of a uh, high-end constitutional interpretation. As for Robert, it seems to me that his, I think his dissent in the same-sex marriage opinion, Obergefell, is the magic. He basically says, look at the Constitution, notice certain things are not in the text of it, notice that when we make stuff up and say it is in the text of it, that we absolutely devastate the reputation of the judiciary for impartiality or for actually calling, you know, balls and strikes, as he once famously said, and this is just made up. This has nothing to do with the history and text of the country, of the Constitution. We just made it up. I just, if we would just put the word abortion in into the word same-sex marriage in his Obergefell dissent, we should get there. <laughs> so, so you and, think with, with the Chief Justice that his concern about integrity of the court, um, you think that plays to our advantage in this case? It can. Uh, it can play both mm-hmm. ways. It, it all, mm-hmm. And we don't know which way it's going to play in his head. I, You know, several years ago, I think we would have all said, if you had asked us the day after his Obergefell dissent, what does this bode for Roe? I would have said it bodes one thing. But since that time, his um, some of his opinions, which to me have not hewed as close to you know the calling balls and strikes that he promised all of us, um, have given us cause to wonder. But the fact that he took what was really nothing less than a courageous as well as correct stance in a Obergefell continues to give me heart. That is a great dissent from the perspective of a person who wants the Constitution read uh, as it should be read versus whatever's in justice's head at that moment. Um, and, as for Kavanaugh, I, Kavanaugh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, do, yeah do you as for Kavanaugh, any predictions? You know, I have read very, very closely his opinions in mostly the, the, the cases that I teach, which are the um, First Amendment law and religion cases, and his willingness to read the Constitution in what I think is an accurate uh, way, his willingness not to go beyond the Constitution and to, to basically, <laughs> it sounds very colloquial, make stuff up. I'm very encouraged by his First Amendment opinions to think that we would get a similarly correct opinion in the Dobbs case. Helen, you've been very generous with your time, and we are very happy that you have been so uh, wonderful to explain your brief to us. I hope it will have a tremendous impact on the court. Well, we hope so. I mean, all we needed to do was give the court a reason to say we don't have to worry. Women will be fine without this constitutional right of abortion. The other side has a made-up link between abortion and women's well-being. They can't show it. In fact, the opposite is likely to be true. We just wanted to give them that ground to stand on, and I think we did. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, when we'll get a glimpse of the awe of those who witnessed Jesus' miracles and works live. 
Jesus, by this point in St. Mark's Gospel, had already made people's hearts burn with his preaching. They had seen him cast out demons, cure many who were sick, feed a multitude with a few pieces of bread and fish, walk on water, and even raise a boy and young girl from the dead. On the force of this reputation, several true friends brought a man who was deaf and mute to Jesus, begging Jesus to lay his hands on him. They were not to be let down. The Lord put his finger into the man's ears, touched his tongue with spit, looked up to heaven, sighed, and cried out in Aramaic, Be open! And the man's capacity to hear and speak were healed. Amazement seized everyone. Even though Jesus told them not to say anything about the miracle, they couldn't help themselves. They were astounded beyond measure and cried out, He has done all things well. This line of joyful amazement in front of Jesus should be the Christian motto. Jesus has indeed done all things well. In his preaching, in his miracles, especially in his salvific passion, death, and resurrection, each of us should cry out with the residents of the Decapolis that the Lord has indeed hit a home run on every swing. Everything he does flows from his infinite wisdom. He really does know what's best for his people in terms of our eternal salvation and carries it out. And his work hasn't stopped. He continues to listen to us in prayer. He continues to grant miracles directly and through the intercession of saints. He continues to nourish us in the sacraments. This motto, he has done all things well, is being challenged in many segments of our culture today. Many of the first pagans we remember, not to mention scribes and Pharisees who thought Jesus was a colossal failure, a criminal executed shamelessly on the electric chair of his day, a so-called king who died crowned not with gold but with thorns. Little did they know what would happen on Easter Sunday. Little could they fathom what the small band of fishermen, tax collectors, and relative nobodies would be able to do in his name throughout the globe. Today, too, many in our culture treat the Lord and the church he founded as behind the times, not with it. To them, Jesus' teaching and the church he founded are a modern irrelevancy. They, too, will be in for a great surprise one day. But a society is becoming less Christian by the day. More of these false ideas have been invading the minds of believers, and this is a much greater concern. If Jesus were to ask us whether we think he did all things well, how would we respond? Generally, I think all of us as disciples would want to respond that, yes, we do believe that he is the Lord, and therefore wisely knows what he's doing and does everything well. After all, if Jesus made mistakes, he could not be divine. But it's when we turn to specific issues that we see whether we, like the residents of the Decapolis, truly praise him for doing some things well or all things well. We can consider a handful of test questions Jesus might ask us and our contemporaries to determine if we really trust him as God to do everything perfectly for us in our salvation. Jesus could ask us, do you believe that I did all things well in reiterating for you the Ten Commandments? Or do you think I should have eliminated some of them or made them optional? Do you believe that I did well in establishing the sacrament of my body and blood as the source of personal loving communion, and stating that unless you gnaw on my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you? Do you believe that I did all things well in establishing the sacrament of confession on Easter Sunday night? And do you come to me in the way I established so that I may forgive your sins? Do you believe that I did well in making marriage the insoluble union of one man and one woman in calling you back to God's plan for marriage in the beginning? Do you believe that I knew what I was doing when I ordained only men to be my apostles and priests? 
Do you believe that I did well in setting a high standard for discipleship, calling you to imitate me in living the Beatitudes and loving others as I have loved you, being merciful to others just as I have been merciful to you 70 times, 7 times, and more, to humble myself to wash others' feet, to deny yourself, pick up your cross every day, and follow me along the path to Calvary? Do you believe that I did all things well in establishing a heaven and a hell? Or do you think that I would have been more loving if everyone were to get to heaven no matter what he or she does in life? Questions like these are important ones for us to ask, because sometimes we can begin to allow the devil to sow seeds of doubt as to whether Jesus knows what he's doing. When, for example, he allows us or those we love to suffer, or when people in authority and positions of the church make decisions with which we don't agree, when we can be tempted to think that God didn't do everything well, when he called us with all our weaknesses to holiness. But he has, in fact, done all things well. To believe in Christ means to trust in his words and actions, to believe in what he said and what he did. This isn't always easy to do, and Jesus never promised that it would be. We can recall from the gospel a couple of weeks ago how hard it was for the twelve to believe in Jesus' words that they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. A full year before Jesus made sense of these words by taking bread and wine into his hands at the Last Supper, changing them into his body and blood, and giving them to his apostles to eat. When Jesus asked if they wanted to abandon him as a result of this teaching, St. Peter with real faith said, Not that he understood everything, but Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Peter said, Jesus, you have done everything well until now, and we trust that in this too, you're doing perfectly and precisely what we need. Jesus calls us in faith to trust in him in the same way. On the day of our baptism, Jesus, through a bishop, priest, or deacon, worked in your life and mine a miracle similar to what he did in the gospel we're here this Sunday. He didn't use spit, but through a sacred minister, he put a dry finger into our ears and then touched our tongue. As the minister said, May the Lord Jesus, who made the deaf hear and the mute to speak, grant that you may soon receive his word with your ears, profess the faith with your lips, to the praise and glory of God the Father. Jesus opened up our ears in faith to hear his word and our mouths to speak to him and about him. The grace of baptism not only touched these organs, but the entire of our being to be receptive to God. Jesus worked this miracle so that we might listen to him with our hearts full of love, to treasure his word, to be transformed by his word, so that through that transformation we might transform the world. As we prepare for Sunday Mass, we ask the Lord to renew in us the grace of our baptism, to hear, obey, speak, and treasure the saving word he proclaims to us in the consequential conversation of the gospel, to pass it on with great courage and holy pride as a lifeline to the whole world. Jesus has done all things well. He wants to continue doing things well through us. In his greatest ongoing work, is what we do at the altar in his memory. May we imitate those in the Decapolis in not being able to restrain ourselves from speaking about all the good Jesus does so beautifully well. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 